you turn with me to Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12? Mark chapter 11 and beginning in verse 12. At verse 12, it, it reads, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and he is Jesus. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Verse 20. Verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Amen. This passage, it begins uh, probably uh, one of the most oddest uh, messages that we see in the Gospels. And it is odd because it seems to be out of character for Jesus Christ. He sees a fig tree because he was hungry. He goes up to that fig tree to eat of it. Uh, there's nothing on it, so... Instead of walking away to another fig tree, he curses that fig tree. And if you know anything about the pseudo-gospels, those gospels that are not true gospels, it, 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 it kind of reminds you of the story in, in, in one of those gospels where Jesus, when he was 12 years old and he was somewhere, and he decides to... Uh, uh, take a pile of dirt and make mud out of it, and he fashioned it into uh, a, a, a dirt or a clay pigeon, and then he throws it in the air, and then all of a sudden that uh, dirt bird, it begins to fly away. Nothing else is said. And this passage, it has that same type of oddness, almost as if it really doesn't belong. So if you would be patient with me this morning, we're going to walk through uh, this whole section. And we're going to see how it all fits together uh, at the very end of this message. So number one, uh, I want you to understand that, that Jesus, he faces and then he judges opposition. Jesus, he faces and he judges opposition. You know, brothers and sisters, God has a limit as to how much he'll take from us. I'm not sure if you are aware of that, but I want you to know that God has a limit as to how much he will take from us. But the passage that I just read is, again, is definitely one of the most confusing and mystifying uh, scriptures in, in, in all the Gospels. But one of the things that we see here is that Jesus himself, he displays his humanity. In other words, he uh, shows us that he is also human. 
Uh, we call Jesus the God-man. Uh, that is what we call the hypostatic union. Uh, that in which Jesus Christ is 100% God and also 100% man. Except he's not man concerning sin. So with Jesus being hungry, that tells us that he can relate to us. Jesus sees a fig tree at a distance and he goes to take fruit from it. I'm not sure how many of you uh, had this experience when you were kids, but uh, in our neighborhood, we knew there were certain places in our neighborhood where we know where we can get fruit at in the summertime. We know that Mr. Humphrey, that he had an apple tree in his backyard. And so-and-so person, there was a, a person who had cherry tree. There's another person who had crab apple trees. There's another person who had berry bushes. So as kids, what we would do on certain days, we would go shopping. And basically, we would go shopping either in the front yard or the backyard of someone else's house. And we would go and we would uh, go pick the berries or pick the apples. And when we couldn't uh, find anything, of course, you can imagine being a kid uh, that you were very, very disappointed. So Jesus here in his humanity, uh, that he decides to use uh, this fig tree as an object lesson. But you're saying, but an object lesson for what? Uh, especially if you're familiar with this passage, and we're going to figure that out in one second. So being ready in season uh, or out of season is something that we have dealt with, especially if you're familiar with Scripture. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 is one of them. It begins the, uh, the phrase as, Kerusan Talagan. It says, preach the word. Paul goes on to say, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, and complete Patience, with complete patience and teaching. In one sense, Jesus was expecting the tree to produce fruits. On the other hand, even though it was not the season for it, he still expected for it to have some type of production. This kind of reminds us, uh, if you can imagine for one moment, if you were at work and your boss originally told you that you had a project due in four weeks, but yet, they came to you in one week and said, where's my project? And you would tell them, what are you talking about? Uh, you told me that it was due in four weeks, and now you're coming to me a week later and saying that it's due right now? You could easily justify your failure to comply because of the guidelines that, that your boss had given to you in the first place. You would say uh, that it was not the agreed upon time and that we both signed off uh, on it in, in the first place. But this fig tree, this enigma here, it had no such convenience. That Jesus, he went to the fig tree, it didn't have any figs on it, no fruit, so he cursed the tree. It's very interesting that during this time of year, uh, during the time that Jesus approached the fig tree, I think it's around in April or early May, that there should not have been any figs on that tree. No, uh, that's very true. There should have been no figs on the tree. So wait a minute. Uh, if that was the time of year uh, that there should have been no figs on the tree, then how can Jesus look at the fig tree 
And then go up and says, since you don't have any uh, a fruit on you, I will curse you all the way down to your roots. You see how this is so mysterious, uh, mysterious how this text uh, seems so confusing? Unless you know uh, the history of the fig trees. You know about how this works, and, and one of the things that we know about the fig trees is that before it produces its very mature and ripe fruit for us to eat, it would produce these very small buds. And these very small buds were also very tasty. As a matter of fact, you knew that uh, if the fig tree had the very small buds, that you knew that later on it would produce a bumper crop of mature figs. So what Jesus saw and what he expected was not the full fig fruit, but what he expected was the very small buds that he could also eat and satisfy himself. So what Jesus saw was, uh, he saw into the future of this fig tree. And he understood that because it did not produce the very tiny buds for him to consume, that later it would have no manifested fruit. So therefore he decides to curse it. But yet, the lesson that Jesus teaches us here has nothing to do with our ability or desire to produce fruit in season or out of season. And I know you're probably saying to yourself, then what? That the idea of this fig tree and Jesus cursing uh, this fig tree really has nothing to do with our own personal ability or desire to produce fruit in or out of season. Here you go. For those who are faithful, Jesus gives prayer which should be done without doubt and with forgiveness. For those who are faithful, Jesus gives prayer, which should be done without doubt and with forgiveness. Now, I want you to understand that I'm not done with that first section of that first passage of Scripture, so you just hold on. It's coming. But for now, would you turn with me again to Mark chapter 11? Let's go to verse 22. Mark chapter 11, verse 22. And the passage reads, And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, or a man, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So I know you're probably saying to yourself now, I get it, I get it now. Jesus, he went to the fig tree and he cursed the fig tree. So what he's telling us is uh, that our prayers can be so powerful that next time that we see an apple tree and it doesn't have apples on it, that I can say, be cursed, apple tree, and that thing is going to die. 
Or you may say to yourself, I get it, I get it. Whatever I ask in the name of Jesus Christ that is mine is mine. Oh, it's mine. So the next time I see that Mercedes going down the street, I'm going to say, that Mercedes is mine. And then I can curse all those who don't give it to me. So therefore it becomes mine. Is this what Jesus is talking about? Hold on. Our need should be met by God through our relationship with him. Our need should be met by God through our relationship with him. Jesus in his humanity, he displays the human need and the human needs must be dealt with, especially those of, uh, of the basic nature like food, water, and shelter. But I want you to note this very important thing, and for this it's going to require for you to look at the scripture. From Mark chapter 11, verse 12, all the way through the end of that section, verse 26. So we see here, Jesus marches through, he curses the fig tree, right? And then there's a little story in here interspersed about Jesus cleansing the temple, and then he comes back, and, and, and the story of the fig tree is, is dealt with, and then Jesus talks about prayer. But I have this question though, right? Wasn't Jesus hungry? Was Jesus hungry? And you say what? Jesus was hungry. When did he get that need met? When did Jesus ever finally get something to eat if he was so hungry. As a matter of fact, he was so hungry that he cursed a fig tree. When did Jesus get that need met? We would expect him to have multiple pieces of bread, loaves of bread there. Because we know that Jesus uh, can uh, create more bread even in the basket that have crumbs in it, right? He can produce loaves of bread. We would have expected that Jesus would have a multiple fish using some borrowed uh, uh, sardines from someone else. But neither did Jesus find a coin in the mouth of a fish and ask their treasurer uh, to go ahead and take this coin and buy some food for us because I'm hungry. There is simply no other scene in this story where Jesus is seen eating after we hear from the scripture that he was hungry. Therefore, that tells us that this gospel is trying to point us to a needed instruction by the Lord. So it's telling us that something else is going on. Something else, if Jesus did not get that need met, then something else is going on. A believer's need, your need, my need for deeply connected prayer with the Lord is necessary because the world disagrees with their assessment by Jesus of the condition of their hearts. What? I'm saying that it is uh, intensely important that we are and maintain our connection with the Lord because uh, the world rejects their as Jesus' assessment about the sinful nature of their heart. 
And this is what we see with the fig tree that Jesus cursed and caused to immediately wither from the roots. What's very interesting here about verse 20 when it says that uh, the, the fig tree withered away in the ESV version that we read. In the original language it says this, that the tree withered from the roots on up. Normally when we see something withering, uh, typically, it kind of, the leaves shrivel away, it starts drooping, and then it goes down into the roots. But in this case, it begins to wither from the roots all the way up. That fig tree, however, here it is. That fig tree, which represents judgment on Israel, is seen by Jesus as a strong stance against a nation or even an individual that purely rejects him because they refuse his call uh, to justice and refuse his call to holiness. So what we see in this fig tree, and you'll see it interspersed throughout Scripture here, Revelation in the very beginning, uh, in the Old Testament as well, that when you see that fig tree, oftentimes it represents Israel. And here in this case, it also represents Israel as well. Well, how do you get that? Well, uh, you have to study the scripture to find out if these things are so. But as you study scripture, you'll find out that that is one of those things which are so. Now, I speak in terms of justice and holiness, that, uh, that, that God speaks judgment on Israel concerning justice and holiness, and not just simply in the way that we treat one another. Right, oftentimes today we hear the story about social justice, amen? And social justice is good, amen? Uh, if it is framed in a biblical framework. See, some people, what they do is they try to break the biblical framework to include those things which are not holy and those things that are not just. That's why social justice uh, cannot be fully uh, God's justice unless it includes holiness at the same time. But we must fight for those. Fight for those who are poor. We must fight for those uh, who have little. We must fight for those who have been marginalized in our society. We must fight for them. But God's total justice However, it must be viewed in terms of the cross of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Now, whatever your thoughts are about justice, they cannot be fully appreciated, again, without our own personal holiness, which, again, can only be obtained through Jesus Christ. In fact, remember 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 16, where Peter says, uh, and he quotes from the Old Testament that where God says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. That was true not only of the Old Testament saints, but it's also true of the New Testament saints, that we all must be holy. So Jesus saw Israel not walking in holiness as they repeatedly rejected his call for them to return to God through him and ultimately through his sacrificial act. They wanted their religious life on their own terms. They wanted church only when they felt a specific need. They fashioned church in an image that God had never agreed to. In fact, that the image that they had fashioned their church to, uh, to God, it was an abomination. That God did not like that. He rejected it totally. 
Now again, understand where we are in this gospel story. We are now fast approaching the very end. We are now in chapter 11. And we know that soon, we have chapter 12, uh, 13, 14, and then 15, we know that the cross is coming up really soon. And Jesus has already walked through this, and he's been rejected already by many of the leaders of Israel. So he sees the fig tree, and he curses the fig tree. In other words, he's telling Israel, boy, you are in big trouble. Because I have so often wanted to take you in as a hen uh, did with her chicks. I wanted to so much to call you my own, but every time I tried, you kept rejecting me. So this right here was a prophetic illustration. A prophetic illustration of Israel who would reject God. In fact, we can't help but to see what happened with an exchange between Jesus and the marketplace activities that was going on in the temple. Now let's go to the same place. Uh, Mark chapter 11, now verse 15. Mark 11, now verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And when he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers or a den of thieves. Verse 18, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. There it is. There it is. There it is, right? Well, there what is, okay? We've already talked about the fig tree, right? Yes, we've already talked about the fig tree, somewhat. We've had Jesus saying he was hungry, and he was seeing the fig tree there, and he cursed the fig tree. And then we saw the very end that the fig tree was withered. But in between this fig tree story, uh, we have uh, another story about Jesus in the temple. And what happens in the temple? That we see them again rejecting Jesus and ultimately rejecting God. I'm not sure uh, if you're familiar about what was going on here in the temple at this time, but I want you to know, again, it was atrocious. Imagine, if you would, that this temple being a church the people, they lost sight of all righteousness before the Lord, and they began to treat God's house like a store. It had gotten so bad that during this time, it was so bad during this time, that people were using uh, the temple as a shortcut to get somewhere else. If you imagine, imagine if you would, this church here, that someone wanted to go uh, back here to the baseball field, Right? And they say, you know what, I don't want to walk all the way around this way, so what I'm going to do is, when it's time for me to go to the baseball field, I'm just going to cut through the church so I can go diagonally and be right there. In essence, uh, for this temple area, that's the only way some of them only view the temple. But then that's not the only thing. That when you would come to the temple in order to bring your sacrifice because you have sinned before God, you would drag your sacrifice along and then you would take it to the priest and the priest say, uh-uh, that's not good enough. Uh, it looks like your animal is walking with a limp. 
Because you can't bring just any old thing uh, to the sacrifice for God. So the priest would tell them, no, you need to get another one. So it just so happens within this court, uh, there were people that were also selling animals. And then what they would do is, okay, they would say, yeah, I see what's wrong with your animal. You can't sacrifice that to God. So they said, I have an animal here that will definitely take its place. And then what they would do is, they said, oh, here, take this animal, but I'm going to give you an upcharge, about $50 or $100. So they would make money on that thing. And then the next person would come around, and they would take that other person's sacrifice that they said was not good enough and sell it to the next person for an upcharge. So they were, they were doing some very unsavory things. And Jesus was seeing all of this stuff happening there, and he demanded that all irreligious uh, nonsense, that it stopped, and it stopped at that time. Jesus says, the things that belong to God, give them to God. So now you're still trying to figure out, so how does all this work out concerning prayer? Well, let's just walk this, through this as well. Pray with faith, but without doubting. Pray with faith, but without doubting. Here in verse 22, Jesus says what? He says, have faith in God. Verse 24, therefore I tell you, wherever you ask, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. There it is. Believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Faith before, during, and after prayer is absolutely crucial, my brothers and sisters. How many times have you wanted to pray or you began to pray and you not really felt as if your prayer was going to make a difference? You can be honest with me. That you began to pray or you wanted to pray and you just felt as if, you know what, I don't think it's going to make a difference, so I'm not going to even pray this time. You see, it's not oftentimes that one single prayer uh, that is problematic for us, but it is the history of our prayers <clears throat> and them being answered is what troubles us the most. But first, notice what Jesus tells us to do when we pray. He says what? Have faith in God. Jesus does not tell us to have faith in the answer to prayer. Neither does Jesus tell us to have faith in our ability to pray. Jesus tells us that a prayer is based off of our faith in God himself. So it's based off of who God is. This means that we all must know God. We must know what he is like. Because if we don't know what he's like in the first place, how can we trust him in the second place? We must therefore know the Lord and know how he operates and know how he deals with us. We must learn of his perfections or his attributes or his characteristics which are true of him. They identify our Lord. And as we know about our Lord, as we know that he's steadfast in his love towards us, as we know that God is faithful to us, we know that nothing can stop him from helping us when he decides to help us. So that when you're praying and the devil, uh, and the devil has you all clammed up, 
You know that God hears your prayer. You know that at those times when you can't even open your mouths, you know what I'm talking about, that sometimes you have those dreams late at night and you're struggling in your dreams and you can't even move and you can't even say anything, right? And you're kind of stuck in this place. Uh, some people say it's the devil that got you. When you know that you get, when you get into that place, you begin to pray with your heart and your mind towards God and you know that God will give you the victory. There are certain needs you will have to have met in which you will be out of ideas. Brothers and sisters, there is coming a time that you're going to be out of ideas. You're going to be out of money. You're going to be out of time. Or you may be out of resources. Where then are you going to return for help? You know, because bottom line is, uh, for all of you, you are going to, only going to remain young only for a certain period of time. Or your job is only going to last only for a period of time. Your money that you have stored up for you in the bank is only going to last only for a period of time. Then where are you going to turn? At this particular point, we know, as we have marched through the Gospel of Mark, that all of the needs of the disciples, that they were met by Jesus. Up to this point, we know that all the needs that the disciples had, they were met by Jesus. It's good when you can declare your independence and do things how you want, when you want, right? Without anybody getting all in your face. But I tell you, there is great freedom when, you, when all of your needs are met by somebody else. Well, all you got to do is just wake up in the morning and, and do something like, uh, I'll pick on the kids, right? Uh, all you got to do is like keep your room clean, right? Your parents are meeting your needs concerning food. You, got, you don't have to worry about your food. You don't have to worry about a roof over your head. You have an address to go to. All of your needs, when it's time for clothes, your parents take care of you. When it's time to go, go to the doctor, your parents are taking care of you. But you know how it is, and all of us have been there, right? All of us, like the disciples, especially when we were kids, we can hypothesize about life. We can complain about everything and question every decision, especially when somebody else is taking care of us. Amen? When there was water coming in the boats with the storm raging outside, who did the disciples turn to? When it was time to eat and there was not enough money to buy groceries for the people following Jesus, who did they turn to to meet their needs? When the Pharisees began to gang up on the disciples for not washing their hands before they, before they ate, who helped them? In each and every case, they turned to Jesus who was visibly present. He was visibly present with them as they struggled with the challenges of just living from day to day and being proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what would happen if Jesus were taken away from them? Who then would they turn to for help when the tides of opposition are turned against them? Who would the disciples go to at that time? They needed a type of help that is heavenly oriented. 
and the kind of help in which nothing is impossible for the one who provides the answer or the solution to the problem. James tells us in James chapter 1, verse 6, that when we ask the Lord in faith, we should not doubt because a person that doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. What exactly did James mean by this? He means that if your faith in God is not strong when you pray, you will be up one moment and down the next. It's like being on one of the rides at Great America. You start off here, then all of a sudden you dip down violently, right? And then you, then you scoop up as high as you can. Then you dip down again, and your heart starts racing. In other words, what James is telling us, that if you don't have strong faith in God without doubting, you will have a life of a roller coaster. That you will be so unstable in your life that every little thing that comes your way, you'll be like, woe is me. Woe is me. When God gets you straight on this aspect of your life, the next thing that's coming uh, your way like a hurricane, you're like, woe is me. Because you're doubting God that he can take care of you. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that the intensity of your troubles uh, does not measure up to the degree of God's ability to overcome that trouble. I'll say it again, that the intensity of your trouble, the trouble in your life, does not measure up to the degree of God's ability to take care of you. Is there anything too hard for God? Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verse 27, Mark 10, 27, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. All things are possible with God. I'll say it again. All things are possible with God. I don't think you believe it, so why don't you say it with me? All things are possible with God. All things. At one point, we must break free from the relentless doubt about God. We must break free about those doubts about Him, and we must do it in prayer. Those, those doubts that plague our minds and hearts, which render us powerless and useless in this world. Shoot, uh, the bottom line is for some of us, prayer is all that we get. I'll say it again, for some of us, prayer is it. That's all you have to offer someone, and maybe Jesus Christ, right? If you're strong enough. So you have Jesus and you have prayer. Let me pray for you. I know that you're in this situation and I know I can't help you, but I can do this. I can pray for you. So people are waiting for you to pray for them without doubting. They're waiting for you right now on your jobs. Your friends are waiting for you right now at school. Someone is waiting for you at the store that you may be going to today to pray for them right now. They need someone who's going to be strong in their faith, who's going to intercede on their behalf. Now, I say all this not to be harsh, but I say this in order to wake us up about from the uh, spiritual stupor that sometimes we find ourselves in. All of our power lies in Christ, so our prayers must also be deeply rooted in Him. Doubt is an enemy of the church. Doubt is an enemy of your soul. 
Doubt is an enemy of your family. It is past time to stand up for what rightly belongs to you. And if you are not there, ask the Lord. Lord, increase my faith. Lord, increase my faith. So there's that first one concerning prayer. That we must have faith in God and pray without doubting. Here's the second one. Pray after having forgiven others first. Pray after having forgiven others first. Verse 25. Here in Mark 11. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is really great. There are other hindrances to faithful prayer as well. Did you know that your prayer life can be messed up because of your wife or your husband? Did you know that? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Peter says that some of you guys, the reason that your prayers are not answered is because you are not honoring your wife the way that you should. And ladies, just in case you're wondering, the reverse may be true as well. <clears throat> because he says that uh, he's not honoring his wife as a weaker vessel. Now, before you ladies get on my case, that's what Scripture says, number one. But number two, also understand uh, that uh, it's not meaning at all that a woman is a lesser person. Doesn't mean that. Doesn't mean that at all. But the bigger principle to consider is that prayer can be blocked when a relationship between a husband and a wife are not right. Prayer can be blocked. You hear what I'm saying? So, you may think that you're living holy before God, right? Or you may think that you're coming to church and you're serving the Lord with all fervor and intensity, right? But you know at the same time that your relationship with that spouse is not right. And then you're walking around wondering, I wonder if God even hear my prayer. Well, the answer to that question is, no. God is like, you don't have it together with your husband or your wife. God is like, talk to the hand. And you're wondering, why is heaven like brass? Because your relationship with your spouse is not right before God. So God will not give you a breakthrough until you get that right. Amen? Now, I know it's hard. I know this is a very difficult thing. So you need to think. And you need to think very carefully about this. But here Jesus explains to us that the lack of forgiveness, it is, again, a hindrance to prayer. Jesus focused on if we are to pray to God, the Father in Jesus' name, that the lack of forgiveness is a problem with God because he expects us to forgive. And we're going to see this in one second. But remember, uh, when the disciples, they wanted to learn how to pray, and, uh, how to pray, and, and, and Jesus told them, okay, I'm going to teach you how to pray, and you pray in this way, right? Our Father, who art in heaven, right? Hallowed or holy be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and do what? What's the next part? Right, forgive us our debt as we forgive so right there, when they first asked Jesus, how do we pray? Part of the prayer concerned forgiveness. 
that in our prayers we ask God to forgive us just as, you see that? Just as we have, in essence, already forgiven those who have trespassed against us. <laughs> I got something really cool coming up here next. This is, it's, just, it's really awesome. Forgiveness of others in or before our prayers is crucial to your prayers being answered. When Israel set up the tabernacle, remember the tabernacle? As a matter of fact, if you go ahead and show that tabernacle, if you have it ready, that they set up the curtains, the altar, the laver, the golden incense, the golden candlesticks, I mean, the showbread, <clears throat> the altar of incense, and the holy of holies. Remember the holy is the holy. Show the holy is the holy is all the way in back. Number one and two. There you go. That's the holy is the holies. Only one person was allowed back there. And then even then, only once a year. But here in the inner part, right here in this section here. No? Yeah, there you go. Stay, stay on the tabernacle itself. Right? You got all these things going on in there. And please keep this up for one second. Or at least you can go back to it. I am going to go back to this in one moment. But notice that if you see the number, I think it's the number four here. You go ahead and point to number four. There you go. Thank you so much. I have a laser on my finger if you're wondering how that's happening. Number four here. This is the altar of incense. The altar of incense was the one thing that represents the prayers of the saints. Thank you, and I will go back to this. In heaven, the prayers offered to the Lord are seen as the smoke from incense. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So if you can go back to that tabernacle for me, please. So here, with the tabernacle, you have the incense. I'm not sure how much, of the, how much of this that the priest actually knew. Show the altar of incense, please. Number four. Right there. The altar of incense. This, of all the stuff that we had here. Okay, take us all the way to the right, please, starting with this animal. Here we have the sacrifice. Then next to it, you have the slaughter tables. You know what the slaughter tables are. That's where they chop up their, that's where the butchers were. And then here on the brazen altar, that is the place where they would take the sacrifice and they would burn the sacrifice. And then moving over, the brazen laver, this is the place where they would clean themselves, especially even the priests before they actually go into the Holy of the Holies. Now going in, uh, number five, we have the lampstand, which is also known as the menorah. And if you remember the lampstand, for those of you who went through Revelation with me, you know that Jesus, that he walks or stands in the middle 
of the seven what? Seven golden candlesticks, right? And we also know that those seven golden candlesticks, that it represents what? The church. One, thing's, uh, one thing about the lampstand here, the golden lampstand, that it, its fire, that its flame, remain continually. Continuing. This is why Jesus said that if you don't get it right, church, then I'm going to snuff out your flame. Now over here, number, number seven, we have the table of shoe bread, right? Number seven, over to the, there you go, right? And the shoe bread basically is, Jesus says that what? Ego me that I, I am the bread of life. Out of all of these things here, the one thing that's the closest to the presence of the Lord is, number four, the altar of incense. So the more that you pray, the closer you are to the Lord. But for us, we know that when Jesus had given his life on Calvary, we know that this veil, number three, we know that the veil was completely split open that allowed us access, gone on into the holies of holies, if you would. Into the holies of holies where, where the presence of the Lord is. So your very prayers are the one thing that you do which places you closest to the Lord even though you can't see it, even though you can't feel it. God's words tell us. But the Israelites, and here it is, thank you very much for keeping that there, but the Israelites could not offer incense. Okay, show us again the incense, the altar of incense. <clears throat> All right, so there's the altar of incense. <clears throat> You can't get in unless you start here at the brazen altar. You hear what I'm saying? I'll say it again. You cannot get in unless you start here. Well, where's here? This is where they would bring their sacrifices for sin. And they would ask God to forgive them of their sins. So in our prayers, Jesus is telling us that forgiveness is important. If you want access into the holies of holies, uh, Jesus tells us that you must be a person not only who prays, but also a person who forgives. You must be a person of forgiveness. If God has forgiven you, you must forgive others. So it could be for this reason that you want to forgive another person so that God can hear your prayers. And I want you to know it's okay. Go back and start forgiving folks. But also I want you to know that God is not a fool into thinking that you have forgiven someone and you really haven't. Well, I'm just forgiving them so God hear my prayer. That's going to be it. I'm going to forgive them. That's going to be the end of that. I don't want to see them again. No. Remember, God is not a child. He knows the thoughts and the intents of your hearts. So I earnestly implore you, brothers and sisters, to forgive those who have hurt you so that when you go to God in prayer, he may hear you and unforgiveness will not be in the way. So the key to this message is to understand this. Is that as Jesus continues to march to the cross, what he's saying uh, that by bringing judgment upon Israel, by cursing the fig tree, he is saying that they're not going to like it. 
And you're going to need my help in order for you to get my help. That number one, that you're going to have faith in God, number one, without doubt. And then number two, that when you pray, you must pray with forgiveness. You need the open line of communication. So the key to this message is to understand that there will be opposition in your life. Because people are not going to like Jesus or what you tell them Jesus is about. Therefore, we must learn how to pray without interference. Without the interference of doubt or without uh, unforgiveness getting in the way of, of us getting to God. So I want you to be encouraged today because Jesus has set an open door before you. Jesus has given you this discipline of, of prayer in which nobody can block. Doesn't make a difference where you are. You can be in the Hilton or you can be in a place that you call hell. But the bottom line is no one can block your prayer when you have right access to God. So you be encouraged. Because again, the door that he opens, no man can shut. And the door that he closes, no man can open. So you pray, and you pray, you pray, and you pray again. And God will hear you. God is and will judge the world. But God tells us we must be people of prayer. And then I tell you, let no unbelief cause you to waver in the promises or the prayer that you have before God. Amen? Let us pray.